Real variety for your work day. This is season three of the Fat Doctor podcast and I'm your host, Dr. Asha Lamy. We're going to be talking all things related to weight stigma, fat phobia and fat activism over the next few weeks and months. I'll be joined by a host of regular guests as well as some experts across the fat activism sphere. So all you need to do now is sit down, relax and listen in. Welcome back to episode three of season three. It's just me today. I sustained an injury earlier on this week. I shan't embarrass myself too much by telling you how I injured myself, but let's just say my dog's is blame, which means that I am running a little bit behind, wasn't able to organise a guest speaker today, and so you're stuck with just me. I hope that's okay. Today I'm going to be sort of finishing off on the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. I think we're all sick and tired of them by now. I think this has been a really important deep dive for me, actually, just because, you know, we see guidelines all the time as a doctor. I use guidelines all the time and I and everyone else in my position take them for granted. We assume that the people writing the guidelines know what they're talking about. And as it has become clear over the last three weeks, often they don't or they do, but they choose to ignore the facts. And sometimes they even recommend things that are dangerous and harmful for patients. And unfortunately, doctors take these things at face value and go ahead and perpetuate that harm. I suppose we started off at the end, we started off with weight loss drugs and surgery and talked a lot about that with Jeanette. Last week, we talked to Rachel more about the kind of investigations and and the recommendations that they're making about treating quote-unquote obesity. Remember that I'm going to be using a lot of pathologising language again this week, and I apologise for that, but I will be reading out a lot of studies, in fact, probably more than in the past, actually. And so I'm just going to be quoting directly from them so that if you do want to look them up, you can actually go look them up for yourself. Many of them are free. And so you can actually read the whole study if you're interested, if, you, uh, if you're if you the kind of person that gets into that kind of stuff. I have to say there are so many studies. I, I don't know, there's over 400. I didn't read them all. I picked some at random and I thought that was the fairest way to do it because there was no way I was going to do all of them. Um, Some I picked intentionally, and you'll see that as we go along. Today, I want to start at the very beginning, which is the premise of the guidelines in the first place, right? Because they've written these 100-page guidelines based on the fact that they claim that being fat or being obese is dangerous for children, and that treating obesity will improve outcomes, and that's health outcomes for children, uh, not only at their age now, but also as they move into adulthood and beyond. So one of the things that never fails to astound me about, well, actually all of the research out there about fatness, but even these guidelines are a real classic example, is how many stereotypes and how much anti-fat bias exists just going into the study. If the researchers themselves are extremely biased against fat people, if the researchers themselves are expecting a certain outcome, then chances are they're going to look for that outcome and they're going to find that outcome. And we call that confirmation bias. And I want you to understand just how obvious it is. Take, for example, table one from the guidelines. So this is an example of the multi-level 
influencers and contributors to obesity. So they have gotten together, all of them, they have brainstormed, probably done some mind mapping. There was no doubt flow charts and spider diagrams and maybe some post-it notes. And they got together and between all of these experts, they came up with the influencers and the contributors to obesity and these are the ones that they're going to look at for the rest of the study so you know when you're when you're starting a study when you're starting writing guidelines you've got to start from somewhere so this is where they started from section a was policy factors and here are the three things marketing of unhealthy foods under-resourced communities and food insecurity so already we are only focusing on food that's it There are no other policy factors that they're interested in, which is strange because we know, and even they admit, that weight is multifactorial and there are lots of other things that can cause it. So why are the policies they're interested in only focused on foods? And it gets worse. Section B is neighbourhood and community factors. So school environment, that's kind of promising. They're talking about schools, that's nice. But it goes downhill very quickly. Lack of fresh food access, fast food proximity, access to safe physical activity and environmental health. Now, school environment and environmental health are massively important in child health. Full stop. Just in child health. The quality of your schooling the neighbourhood you live in, the quality of air and the quality of water and the amount of green space and how closely packed in you are into your housing all has a huge role to play in child health, full stop. It also has a role to play in whether or not people gain weight, full stop. You can therefore assume that if it impacts child health and it impacts weight, The two are related. And yet they just gave a little bit of, you know, school environment, environmental health. They don't actually go on to talk about it much, but they do talk about lack of fresh access to food, fast food proximity, access to safe physical activity. They go on and on and on about this in the guidance. They are obsessed with the idea that fat children don't get enough fruit and vegetables, eat too much fast food and don't do enough exercise. That is what they believe and that is the opinion that they held when they first started making these guidelines and that is the opinion that they hold throughout and that they conclude with look at this family and home environment factors now we can all agree right that when you're a child your home and your family play a vital role in your development again full stop in your health full stop and also in your weight full stop three separate things but it's reasonable to assume that the three are related to each other. So what do they want to talk about in family and home environmental factors? Well, you won't be surprised. Parenting feeding style, sugar-sweetened beverages, portion sizes, snacking behaviour, dining out and family meals, screen time, sedentary behaviour, sleep duration, environmental smoke exposure, and then tacked on at the end, psychosocial stress and adverse childhood experiences. Hmm, there's 11 factors there. Only two relate to something other than food, activity and parental smoking. Again, this idea that fat children 
eat too much, drink too much soda, snack all the time, eat in front of the TV, spend their whole time sitting down, not doing any activity, don't get enough sleep, their parents smoke. You know, all of these ideas, this is kind of stereotype of a fat child. Again, we see just how prejudiced they are going into the study. Now we get on to individual factors. Now, come on, surely this is going to be slightly more inclusive. Right, individual factors. They've got, they got to mention something other than food. And oh, look, genetic factors. Woohoo! They talk about the monogenetic syndromes, the polygenetic effects. They even talk about epigenetic effects. Whoop, whoop. But that's it. They just mention them and then they ignore them. And then there's prenatal risk. And <laughs> look at this. Parental obesity, maternal weight gain, gestational diabetes, maternal smoking. Oh, look, folks, let's focus on the fat parents. Then there's postnatal risk, birth weight, early breastfeeding cessation and formula feeding, rapid weight gain during infancy and early childhood, early use of antibiotics. That one's interesting, actually. I'd never heard of that before, so I was fascinated by that one. I then goes on to talk about childhood risk, endocrine disorders, finally... We're admitting that certain health conditions can cause weight gain. Yay! Children and youth, so special health care needs. Absolutely, folks. This is really important. Children with autism spectrum disorder. I don't like using disorder, but that's what they've called it. Children with developmental and physical disabilities. Children with myelomeningocele, which is a rare condition. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. <sighs> and then we go on. Weight promoting appetite Appetitive traits, appetitive traits. I don't know that was a word. Medication use. Right at the bottom, right at the bottom, all that nonsense about food. And right at the bottom, oh yeah, sometimes we give you medication that actually causes weight gain. Do you think? And depression. So look, they have covered some important parts. Of course they have. They couldn't not. I mean, it would have been completely and utterly neglectful of them. But actually, they're not particularly interested in these individual factors. They spend a lot more time focusing on the neighbourhood and community factors, etc, etc. So they sort of give a sort of nod to everything else. You know, yeah, sure, children with special health care needs need special health care, which we kind of knew. And, you know, endocrine disorders can cause weight gain, but... That's it. That's all they say. We we acknowledge it. And as, as Rachel and I were talking about last week, we acknowledge it and then we move on. It's not particularly helpful. Now, like I said, there were so many. I just randomly picked some because I just, I, you know, I couldn't look at all of them. So I looked at one which was a systemic review. Sorry, the guideline stated systemic reviews have shown an association between fast food outlets and convenience stores lo- located near schools and obesity in children. So they linked a study. I went and looked at it. It was called Food Environment Near Schools and Body Weight, a Systematic Review of Associations by Race, Ethnicity, Gender, Grade and Socioeconomic Factors, published in April 2021. So it was pretty recent. And uh, I'm not going to tell you about the whole study because we don't have time, but it was actually quite a well-conducted study. It was a systematic review. So they looked at lots of different studies. They couldn't do a meta-analysis because it wasn't good quality enough evidence. They didn't have enough um, heterogeneity. I cannot say that word ever. Um, But the, the studies weren't similar enough to compare, but they did a systematic review. And they found, unsurprisingly, that, yeah, the closer you're, you are to a fast food environment near your school, the more likely you are to be in a larger body. Now, of course, fast food restaurants 
tend to be in very built-up areas, right? You're not going to find a fast food in, um, restaurant in the middle of a suburban neighbourhood. You're probably going to find it in a city or an, an inner city area. And so already we have got a major variable that we can't really adjust for because you cannot compare a rural environment where you have absolutely no access to fast food and an inner city environment. So if you're looking mainly at inner city environments, well, you're going to see, you know, socioeconomic factors and all sorts of other reasons that could explain why people are gaining weight in those environments. So they have kind of looked at those they looked at race and they looked at ethnicity gender grade socioeconomic factors they looked at them and said actually it's much higher in these groups and that was it they didn't sort of go well maybe that might explain things they just went yeah it's higher in these groups and that is a common thing we find a link an association we say actually it looks like it's more common in inner city areas and then we go so in people in inner city areas are fatter or you know or or, or are sicker or have way worse eating habits. Let's look at the limitations. I like to look at the limitations of studies because they always look so bright and shiny and then they have to admit where all the problems are in their research. Right at the bottom, in small wording, most people ignore this part, but I'm going to read it out because I think it's really important. Given the heterogeneity in study methods, settings and research questions, meta-analyses were not included. The results are presented as a narrative review. The findings from the systematic review revealed that only a small number of studies have reported results specifically for subgroups. We observed more consistent evidence among Latino students for other racial or ethnic groups. The magnitudes, directions of the effects and the strengths of evidence were less consistent. And actually looking at the data, there was a lot of studies done in California so that they may well explain why there's more evidence for Latino students and not for anyone else. The limited body of evidence suggests consistent associations between obesogenic food environments near schools in other words fast food restaurants because we all know that fast food causes fatness and weight status across all grade levels with some studies reporting greater association in younger grades however there is a need for future studies in more diverse settings in other words we can draw a few weak associations but to be honest with you folks there's not enough evidence to really say anything and there were only a few studies to be fair and they weren't particularly good studies so this is a classic systematic review or meta-analysis that you'll see throughout these guidelines where yeah they possibly suggest a weak association but it's poor quality evidence and really we shouldn't be looking at poor quality evidence and saying there's your proof it's not fair If you're going to make a statement like children who go to fast food restaurants are far more likely to be fat, you better have the evidence to back it up. And if your evidence doesn't account for things like inner city versus suburban versus rural areas, then your study's no good. Quite frankly, it's just no good. It's useless to me. If you've not accounted for geography in this study, then why am I bothering reading it? Because it's it's going to be biased. I can tell you that from the moment I read it. So what else did I find? We were talking about parental obesity. This is a big one. They love to um, blame the parent, don't they? And so this one, I think I think I picked up on that. I mean, I say I, I looked randomly, but that one probably annoyed me as a you know fat parent. So I wanted to look into this. 
Um, there's predicting obesity in young adulthood from childhood and parental obesity. That's the study I'm looking at. They looked at height and weight measurements uh, from the records of 854 subjects born in Washington State between 1965 and 1971. That was a really long time ago. Uh, I think this study is from 1997, actually. And then they looked at the parents' medical records. And that's it. So they, they picked out all the fat children. You know, they, they said childhood obesity was defined as a body mass index at or above the 85th percentile for age and sex. And this is pretty standard. I think we talked about this last time where there's a big sort of graph, what we call a bell-shaped curve. And those people are in the middle of the curve and it's the people on the outside that they focus on. So that's pretty much standard. But check this out. Obesity in adulthood as a mean body mass index of 27.8 or 27.3 for men and women respectively. Huh? Like, that's too low. (laughs) Sorry. But 27.8, you know, even by our standards is too low. So that's a bit worrying. And I wonder how much that skewed the data. Look at this. 94% of the 854 subjects were non-Hispanic whites. 64% were female and 93% were born to married mothers. So not a particularly representative group. Um, And what did it find? Obesity in one or both parents probably, probably, very important here, influences the risk of obesity in their offspring. Uh, Has that come as a shock to anyone? Are we all surprised? Have we not talked about over and over again how genetics plays a huge role in weight? So the fact that parents who are fat have children that are fat that's you know not pretty obvious can't believe they spent all that money doing a study looking at something that we could have just told you using our own common sense they go on to say that actually even the study says probably because of shared genes or environmental factors within families even the study admits that it's probably genetic so Sure, having a fat parent probably predicts whether or not you'll be a fat child or a fat adult. But we knew this, didn't we? What else did I look at? Um, Oh, sugar-sweetened beverages. In the UK, they've got a sugar tax now uh, where they banned sugar in, in beverages. Well, they didn't ban it, but there's a massive tax on it. So basically all our drinks now contain sugar substitutes and there is very little evidence to show what these sugar substitutes will do to people 20 to 30 years down the line we don't know whether or not they're linked to all sorts of medical conditions we don't have the evidence we we don't know if they're safe but we just crossed our fingers and hoped they were because apparently drinking sugar makes you fat that's what we've been told we're absolutely adamant about this so we now have the sugar tax the sugar tax now means that if you want to drink fizzy drinks you have to drink fizzy drinks that contain sugar substitutes in the uk not all of your countries that you live in are going to have the same rules but i imagine that they'll all head there eventually and so this kind of blaming of of you know soda pop whatever you want to call it fizzy drinks is is such a it's such a classic stereotype. People make these ridiculous jumps. That person's fat, therefore that person must drink a lot of soda, therefore soda must be make you fat. Like that's that's the jump that they've come to. That's the the belief that they have going into the study. That's the confirmation bias right there, and they go look for it. The thing is, I I, I literally don't drink fizzy drinks. I never had, I can't stand them. I, I've never liked them. Um, I remember my mum sort of let me drink Coke when I was really young and me go, 
and that's it never touched it again my daughter hates ketchup hates it with a passion won't put it anywhere near her food weird right but i don't like fizzy drinks she doesn't like ketchup and i'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are like us to assume that every fat person out there is a soda drinking ketchup using fatty that you know can't stop eating is ridiculous and unfair but what does the actual evidence say so um they 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 had a few studies that they linked to i I picked the first one sugar sweetened beverages and weight gain in children and, and adults a systematic review from 2013 to 2015 as a comparison with previous studies this was published in something called Obesity Facts. I've never heard of this journal, okay, from 2018, so fairly recent. So what did they do? They looked at all the studies. It was, a, it's a, again, can't do a meta-analysis because it, too much heterogeneity. But they did do a review, a systematic review, and the results were kind of varied. Let's put it that way. Yes, there was a positive correlation maybe but again it was a very weak one and you know it included a lot of sort of fluffing of of the data to make it look better than it was and again look in the limitations we must however admit that studies varied substantially with respect to exposure assessments adjustment for covariates and specific outcomes evaluated don't forget studies like this are going to rely on people reporting right no one's going around with a clipboard watching how many fizzy drinks that you have so we know reporting is notoriously inaccurate people will often underreport um, or overreport, depending on what the study is so just the reporting in of itself is not helpful the associations between sugar sweetened beverages and body weight measures might be confounded by other diet and lifestyle factors so a lot of the studies didn't actually look at anything else they just looked at drinks that's it without any context and again that's not an accurate study that is not the kind of study we need to be looking at and saying oh that gives us evidence no it's far too basic i'm sorry a small child could do that study it doesn't require any sort of higher thinking or critical thinking just count how many fizzy drinks a person has over time and then calculate their weight later on in life that's not a real study and so often they ignored everything else that being said the authors say the majority of the prospective cohort studies adjusted for possible confounders including several nutrition and lifestyle factors again when they did their sort of adjustment for confounders, they were only interested in nutrition and lifestyle because, again, folks, nutrition and lifestyle is the only thing that is important when it comes to talking about fatness, maybe physical activity. No one thought, hmm, why are people drinking fizzy drinks? Could it be because they don't have access to clean water, for example? Because I've read studies in certain parts of the world where that is really the case. Coca-Cola is cheaper than bottled water. So people drink Coca-Cola and it makes sense. Nobody thought to look at that because why would you? Um, it could be that they're, it's, it's a way of coping with stress. It could be all sorts of things. They could be drinking energy drinks because they're tired, because they're not getting enough sleep, because they don't live in a safe environment or all sorts of things. No one bothered to look at any of this stuff. They just looked at nutritional and lifestyle factors because that's all they're interested in when it comes to fat people another example of the ridiculous papers that they love to sort of signpost to 
there's a section in there that talks about family behavior right remember i was talking earlier on about family meal times so they talked about how you know, the way that parents eat infle- in- impacts or parents lifestyle impacts children's lifestyle which therefore impacts their weight so they <laughs> they quoted the study family leadership styles and adolescent dietary and physical activity behaviors a cross-sectional study the international journal of behavioral nutrition and physical activity again never heard of that journal um from 2012 so they quote this and so i went and looked at the study and i started reading it and i thought what what's the purpose of this study basically it showed that when a parent eats quote-unquote healthy food restricts their portion size does more physical activity their children copy that's that's it (laughs) that's all it showed and I thought to myself yeah again I didn't need a study to show me that common sense would have done that job for me I know that but does that actually impact a their weight and more importantly b their health because isn't that what we're interested in here? We're not interested in, in whether or not parents could teach their children to starve. We already know that. We're not interested in whether or not parents can force their children to go on park runs. We already know that. I've seen it with my own eyes every single weekend. Lots of thin, athletic parents and their, you know, leggings and their running shoes that probably cost £200 with their children next to them going for a run and then having a healthy green juice or whatever it is they're doing with their children. Sure, I mean, we know that we can do this to our children, but is it going to benefit them in any way? And more importantly, is it going to harm them down the line? Have we actually looked at that? No. So they're quoting studies, you know, in four, over 400 references and they're quoting references that you just think, why do you even include that? What a waste of time. And it certainly doesn't reflect what you're trying to imply, which is that if parents are quote-unquote good role models then their children will be quote-unquote good children and will look thinner which is basically what you're after isn't it are you getting fed up yet because i'm getting fed up i'm getting fed up the more i looked at the research the more i was like this is this is crap i'm fed up with it all these kind of things they're talking about, you know, that list I read you right at the beginning. They keep talking about it and I keep looking at their data thinking, and what? What have you proven? What have you shown? What have you demonstrated? What have you added to this discourse? We already know that you think that we're fat because we eat too much and don't exercise enough. We already know that you think that we snack too much during the day and we eat too much fast food and we drink too many sugary drinks and we don't get enough exercise and we're lazy and we spend too much time in front of screens and we don't spend enough time outside. All of that stuff, we already know that. And here you are with this 75-page guideline, 25 pages of references, and you're telling us something that we already knew. Okay, Um, let's look at perhaps some of the slightly more concerning in my opinion, underlying issues when it comes to quote-unquote obesity research. I I looked at this study for a long time and it worried me. Uh, it's called Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Early Childhood Obesity and it's from the journal Pediatrics, January 2018. The introduction basically says the prevalence of childhood obesity is significantly higher among racial and or ethnic minority children in the United States. And that's true, right? It is unclear to what extent well-established obesity risk factors in infancy and preschool explain these disparities. 
our objective was to decompose racial and or ethnic disparities in children's weight status according to contributing socioeconomic and behavioural risk factors. This is a huge study and there's a lot of signposting to this study. You have to understand what they're trying to say here because it's a lot of words. They're saying, look, we know that children who are not white are more likely to be fat. And we're trying to figure out why this must be. So in order to do that, we're going to compare a whole bunch of quote-unquote obesity risk factors in infancy and preschool. And we're going to look at the way these impact different racial groups. And we're going to then draw some conclusions about why we see higher levels of quote-unquote obesity in non-white children. So I wonder how many of you can see where I'm going here. Again, we're coming into this study, whole group of people sat down with their spider diagrams and their, and their post-it notes and you know their different conversations. I've been involved in one of these planning studies, by the way. Like I've sat down uh, in, a, in one of these meetings where they're kind of trying to brainstorm this big study, how they're going to look at all the different factors I sat in two or three separate meetings, two hours long, and they were actually, this particular group was interested in hearing from the lay community. So they asked anyone to join in. It wasn't just their research group. And we spent all this time talking about the various risk factors that they should be looking at. And most people were PE teachers or, you know, dietitians or whatever, and they focused on food and they focused on exercise. And there was little on me going, hey, what about weight stigma? What about weight cycling? Hey, what about health inequalities? Could we maybe factor those things in as well? And they kept going, yeah, all that, very good, yes. Oh, weight stigma, mm, mm, mm. Did they include it? Hell no, they're not interested in weight stigma. No one's interested in weight stigma. No one is interested in the racial inequalities in healthcare. Because we already know that fat people receive poorer healthcare. We already know that weight stigma contributes to poor health. We already know that because of weight stigma, doctors do fewer tests, doctors do less monitoring, doctors ignore worrying symptoms, doctors tend to offer fewer treatments, and a lot of people also avoid their doctors because their doctors are so mean and scary. And so we know this impacts health. We know this. Add to that race. Again, non-white people don't trust doctors and they're right not to. They have had many experiences over centuries, in fact, where doctors have specifically harmed their communities. Inequalities in healthcare, forget also the money and insurance and all of that stuff as well, and where you live and how close you are to your local hospital and how good the service is. I mean, forget all of that. Just there's so many different reasons why non-white people have poorer health care. So if you're in a fat body, you have poor health care. And if you're in a black fat body, you have even poorer health care. This is fundamentally important to understand and to study and to research when we're having this conversation about why there are racial and ethnic disparities in early childhood obesity. Do they mention it? Fuck no, they don't. Why would they? What do they talk about? Here we go. <sighs> Maternal risk factors include mother's weight and mother's history of smoking during pregnancy. That's it. That's all it is. Infant risk factors, breastfeeding, age of introductions of solid food, infant weight gain at nine months. Can you believe that? At nine months. Babies all grow at different rates. This is ridiculous. 
early childhood risk factors. Television viewing, hours per day, sugar-sweetened beverages, fruit and vegetable consumption, physical activity, family meals, childcare arrangements. That's it, folks. Finally, we come on to socioeconomic factors, you'd think. Okay, finally, the important things. Number one is household socioeconomic status. In other words, which social class you're in. Number two is household food insecurity. Again, really important, but why do we keep on coming back to food? Why aren't we talking about anything else? And number three, and number three is the last one, folks, so that's going to give you an idea of how angry I'm about to get. Neighbourhood safety. Those are your three socioeconomic factors. Health inequalities? Nope. Housing? Nope. Access to good quality schooling? Nope. Reproductive rights? Nope. Not interested in any of that. Pollution? Ha! No interest. Only whether or not you're poor, whether or not you have food insecurity, and whether or not you live in a safe neighbourhood. Again, such stereotypes. And whilst these three things are so important, they are only three out of a list of at least 20 things that I personally could come up with on the spot. But they weren't interested. They just weren't interested. So all you get at the end of the study is, yeah, non-white children have higher rates of obesity. And that's because, and then they list all of the things that you're not surprised to find are higher in non-white children. What a shocker. Non-white children have a, you know, come from lower socioeconomic groups. Really? I didn't know that. Gosh, this is news to me. I mean, this is this is confirmation bias in action. And do you see how this warps our ability to think critically, our ability to make good quality recommendations? We're so blinkered that we're just not considering anything else. And therefore, we're not safe to make recommendations. We need people who are not going to be biased, who have been tested for their bias, who are not financially invested in giving out certain recommendations. This is nonsense and this is dangerous and this is racism right? This is racism. This is perpetuating racial bias, stupid prejudgments, beliefs, attitudes, thoughts about black and other non-white people. They didn't bother to look at the important things. And that just really makes me mad. And I apologise if you're a black or non-white person that's listening to this right now. That must be really hard to know that even when it comes to weight stigma, you are always drawing the short straw or in some cases, the non-existent straw. A little further down in the documentation, there is mention of adverse childhood experiences and something that I touched on with Rach last week. And it's something that I am extremely passionate about as someone with a relatively high ACE score, although my husband's is nine out of 10. So um, make of that what you will gallows humour but I always joke like mine's high but yours is higher as if that's something to boast about but as someone who understands how hard it is to overcome adverse adverse childhood experiences and how much they impact your health in general whether it be physical health mental emotional social environmental everything the the friends you choose the relationships you have the boundaries that you are or in my case are not able to set the impact that it has on your physical body, the stress and the long-term stress, the hypervigilance, the dissociation, all of these things have a massive impact on us emotionally, socially, but also physically. So I don't like the fact that they've only got a little section 
one out of first childhood experiences, like a few short paragraphs. It seems to me that compared to all the nonsense they're writing about sugar sweetened beverages, that they could at least, you know, put this in italics or I don't know, stick it at the top so we can see it, maybe in like one of those little text boxes. Draw our attention to it because it's quite important. It says a number of studies have documented an association between adverse childhood experiences and the development of overweight and obesity. Yet there is a clear link, a clear association. And again, we cannot conclude anything just from an association, but there is a clear association. And so that's something to bear in mind. ACEs impact us via toxic stress, which occurs... And they're quoting, when a child experiences strong, frequent and or prolonged adversity, such as physical or emotional abuse, chronic neglect, caregiver substance abuse or mental illness, exposure to violence and or the accumulated burdens of family economic hardship without adequate adult support. Family economic hardship is not necessarily an adverse childhood experience if you've got a supportive family. So you don't have to have much money to have a very supportive family and to actually get through childhood relatively unscathed. I mean, it's still harder. There's no question, okay? The more money you have, the the more privilege it buys you. But you don't necessarily experience an ace, as it were, just because of family economic hardship or you have a parent with a mental illness. That, That doesn't necessarily mean anything. But you need to have adequate adult support. And that's the important part here. If you come from a home in which neither parent is able to give you that emotional support that you need to deal with these challenges that you're facing, then that's going to affect you long term because of this prolonged adversity, which causes toxic stress, right? Not just stress. Everyone has stress. Toxic stress. Toxic, the name gives it away, damages your body and it damages it long term. ACEs include a history of physical, emotional, sexual abuse, exposure to domestic violence, household dysfunction from parental divorce or substance abuse, economic insecurity, mental illness and or loss of a parent because of death or incarceration. Again, I say a parent could die. That's awful and of course it's going to impact you. But if you don't have the support you need to cope with that, then it is going to damage your body. So a study found that cumulative ACEs doubled the risk of children having overweight or obesity compared to their counterparts with no history of ACEs. And I can't remember what the number was. I didn't actually look at the study, but I've seen it before. I don't know how many you have to have for this to work, but it literally doubles your risk. So there's a clear association. And we know that the more ACEs you have, the stronger the association as well. That's that's without doubt. (laughs) And then they go on. And this this bit really boils my piss. Unresolved stress and emotional issues may result in maladaptive coping strategies, such as binge eating, eating in the absence of hunger, impulsive eating, and poor sleep hygiene, which may result in further weight gain. You see, what they've done there is they've gone, oh, Adverse childhood experiences are linked to obesity. Let's make an assumption about why that is. It must be because of binge eating and eating when you're not hungry and impulsive eating and poor sleep hygiene. That must be the reason. Now, does binge eating and eating in the absence of hunger mean that we eat more? Yes. Does that mean that we might gain weight? Yes. Poor sleep hygiene. Is it related to weight gain? Yes. 
Could these be contributing to the association between adverse childhood experiences and quote-unquote obesity? Yes, all of those things are fair, but that's not the whole picture, is it? That's not even half the picture. Again, they only care about what you eat and how much exercise you get and nowadays how much sleep you get. That's all they're interested in. They have not thought about how unresolved stress and emotional issues may cause weight gain for other reasons. The issue here is not why. It's more, what are we going to do about it? Right? Because we all agree that this kind of stress is not good for children. We all agree that stress is a terrible thing to happen to kids. And so shouldn't we as doctors be trying to intervene when it's happening? Like, isn't that kind of our job? Instead of going, oh yeah, children are fat and, you know, possibly that's related to adverse children childhood experiences, we ought to, you know, bear that in mind. Should we not be going, hmm, I wonder if there's scope here to intervene. Now, as Rach mentioned last time, and she's so right, and this is so important, and I, I, I think it's, it cannot be understated how much people will twist my words and insinuate that I'm suggesting that everybody who gains weight, you know, has been traumatised in their childhood. Uh, I have said it very clearly, they don't. In fact, even if you undergo stress, it's not the stress, it's how you cope with the stress that counts. So a lot of people are going to gain weight because of genetic factors. And that's it. Nothing else. It's just the genetic factors. Or they have a medication that's making them gain weight. Or they have a medical condition. Or, uh, you know, or, or nothing. Or it's just it just is. <laughs> you know, that could be another reason. Just, you know, some people are fat. Some people are thin. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some people have brown hair. Some people have red hair. Some people have black hair. Some people have lots of melanin in their skin. And some people don't. Okay. You know, that's the end of that. Moving on, it could be all sorts of reasons, but I cannot stress the importance of trying to intervene in these adverse childhood experiences as soon as possible. If you've got a kid who is being sexually abused, remember one in six children are sexually abused in their lives. It may show up in its first instance because they start eating a lot because food is a way of coping. So they start eating and coping. And there is a, an episode right back in um, series one of this podcast where we discuss this, you know, how food became a mechanism for one individual to cope with the awful abuse that was going on in their life. So why aren't we thinking about that? Why aren't we screening for it? If, if, if they have the audacity to say that every fat child over the age of 10 needs to have a blood test to check their cholesterol levels, even though there's not that much evidence supporting it, surely they could also suggest maybe we should do some simple screening. It's not hard. It's really not hard. But no, they have no interest because they're not actually interested in the health and well-being of children. They're interested in fatness. They've made that very clear. I've, I've said this over and over again over the last three weeks. They are not interested in child health. In fact, they are invested in harming children. That's clear. There's no doubt about it. But even in this situation where they're talking about adverse children, childhood experiences, as paediatricians, they have zero interest in acting on it. That's it. They talk about it. They say poverty and associated toxic stresses in utero and early childhood have been suggested to initiate neuroendocrine and or metabolic adaptations that produce biological phenotypes and obesogenic behaviours that lead to obesity. These effects may persist throughout the lifetime. Fuck you. That's all I have to say about that. Fuck you. There are children out there 
that are suffering and struggling in silence because we are not interested in them because we see a fat kid and we don't care. We lose all our compassion. All we want to do is make that kid thin. That's it. Fuck you very much. Gosh, I may have to edit this. I'm slightly angry. Okay, folks, I've gone on long enough. I'm going to end here because I've got to end eventually. So they talk a lot about the association between childhood obesity and uh, all sorts of medical conditions, right? High cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, non-alcoholic, fatty liver disease, obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, they go on and on and on and on about the usuals, the ones that we always hear about. But I just thought I'd look at one. And they make a statement here. It's very, very clear, the statement. Studies indicate that cardiovascular risk factors track from childhood into adult life and that lifestyle treatments can improve outcomes with respect to these risk factors. You heard that, right? They say that studies indicate that your cardiovascular risk factors can start in childhood, go all the way through to your adult life, and that lifestyle treatments can improve outcomes with respect to these risk factors. In other words, we can bring your risk factors down, and in doing so, we can reduce your risk of having a heart attack as an adult because you're not going to have a heart attack as a kid but you might have one as an adult and you know that's another reason why we can force you to take drugs uh or not force sorry recommend strongly that you take drugs and have surgery and you know all of that stuff they linked three studies i'm going to tell you all about them childhood body mass index and the risk of coronary heart disease in adulthood that's a study from the new england journal of medicine in 2007 they investigated the association between body mass index in children from ages 7 through 13, and cardiovascular heart disease in adulthood, with and without adjustment for birth weight. That's it. That's all they adjusted for. So they basically looked at all these kids, these records of all these kids, and it was a Danish study, and then they looked at how many of them went on as adults to have heart attacks, and they did a graph, and that was it. So that was not useful at all. We, we know nothing except for children who are, you know, Children who are heavier end up having more heart attacks when they're older. That's all we know. We haven't actually adjusted for anything. We don't even know if they were, quote unquote, obese in adulthood. Like, we don't even know that. <laughs> just just that they were fat when they were children between the ages of 7 and 13. Excellent. Uh, that hasn't shown us that lifestyle treatments can improve the outcomes, right? That's got nothing to do with anything. It's just quite a crap study the second one also from the new england journal of medicine i love how people are getting into the new england journal of medicine with such shit studies childhood adiposity adult adiposity and cardiovascular risk factors it's looking promising what did they find and you're not going to believe this like brace yourselves because it's going to come as a shock overweight or obese children who were obese as adults had increased risks of type 2 diabetes hypertension high cholesterol and carotid artery atherosclerosis, in other words, blockage of the carotid arteries. So fat people have an increased risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. That's what the study showed. Um, okay, moving on. Lifetime risk. Childhood obesity and cardiovascular risk. This is, comes from the European Heart Journal 2015. This is our last chance, right, to prove their, their statement which they referenced very clearly, and I've read all the studies. So this was more of a literature review than it was a study. It references many, many studies, and I didn't have time to go through all of them. But I looked specifically because, of course, I wanted to know whether or not when you're fat as a child, 
you end up more likely being fat as an adult and that fat adults are more likely to have heart disease, which I already knew. Um, I've been told that since I was a baby and you don't need a medical degree to know that. So I wanted to know whether or not the statement that lifestyle interventions could improve the risk factors, which could reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. That was the bit I was interested in. So I got down to the bottom of the paper where, you know, there was a small paragraph and it said, although childhood obesity appears to convey a lifetime risk for cardiovascular disease, it remains unclear as to what factors during the passage through childhood into adult life may influence this risk. Because, you know, it's quite a long period of time, isn't it? Lots of things could happen to influence this risk. It says large-scale, multi-ethnic, longitudinal studies undertaken preferably from birth, but certainly from early childhood, are required to study these factors. Measurements should preferably include more detailed assessment of body composition and fat distribution and pubertal development. Some lifestyle intervention studies have indicated reversibility of adverse cardiovascular structure and function over a short or intermediate time frame. The long-term effects on cardiovascular risk and disease of lifestyle and disease of lifestyle interventions, drug therapies, and bariatric surgery in children and adolescents remains to be determined. I will repeat that last statement because that's where we're going to end. The long-term effects on cardiovascular risk and disease of lifestyle interventions, drug therapies, and bariatric surgery in children and adolescents remains to be determined. That's all I need to say. I hope you found the last three weeks helpful. And if you have any more questions and you're interested, get in touch. You never know, I might do another podcast in the same vein somewhere down the line in this season. Next week, we're going to switch it up completely. We're going to be hearing quite a challenging story, really, from a wonderful woman that I have been in contact with recently really looking forward to sharing that with you even though I want to prepare you now it's not going to be easy to listen to in the meantime have a good week folks and take good care of yourselves as for me check out my website www.fatdoctor.co.uk for more information about what I'm up to and what I have on offer folks creating and maintaining a podcast requires long hours and lots of cash to burn i love this podcast i love pouring my heart and soul into everything that i do but it isn't always easy so if you'd like to support me and the work that i'm doing i have a patreon page all the details are available on my website and in the show notes thank you for listening and i look forward to catching up with you next week